0: I'm Catherine Nichols, here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per year of the 20th century. Today is our first episode about Cheaper by the Dozen, which came out in 1948 and was massively successful. Um, It is our first book on the podcast that lots of people read right when it was published. Um, It's a different category for a podcast that's about both history and literature. Um, We're not talking about people who are on the sidelines of their culture in any way describing where they are in relation to a mainstream. This is um, the story that the mainstream was telling about themselves. Um, It's the kind of book that was turned into a movie two years after it came out, several more times since then, and has never been out of print to my knowledge. Uh, we also have a guest. We'll be talking with April Holm, an American history professor at the University of Mississippi. Her book is called A Kingdom Divided, Evangelicals, Loyalty, and Sectionalism in Civil War Era. In general she studies slavery and Civil War, but we had so much fun talking to her about this book that we ended up recording two episodes worth of material, so we'll be talking to her more next week in that episode too. A quick uh, summary of the book, It's about a family where the parents are both professional efficiency experts. They have 12 kids. It's set in the first decade of the 20th century and it ends in 1924. Um, So that's when the oldest of the kids they're kind of growing up. Um, It's written by two of the children once they're adults telling these kind of humorous anecdotes from their childhood. It's not quite a children's book but it's not not a children's book. Um, I think it's often read by children so, with that said, here's our conversation with April about "Cheaper by the Dozen."
1: April. So, so I guess like everyone, you read this as a child, and like approaching it again now,
2: how was it different for you? Yes, I did. I read it as a child, and I remember really enjoying it and thinking it sounded so fun to be part of this big, boisterous family. And I. <laughs> My recollection was just kind of everyone having a jolly time all the time. Um, And on rereading it now as an adult, I was really horrified by what life was like (laughs) in this family and just how much um, everyone's lives seemed to revolve around kind of stoking the ego of the father who is like constantly, um, you know, playing these really mean practical jokes and uh, kind of tormenting his children had all of these kind of arcane seeming rules and the moment that really pushed it it was very early in the book I think it was like eight pages in there's this aside (laughs) about how the father bought these sheep and then essentially like the sheep just died um, due to neglect and um, that was the moment when I was like oh this is um, I'm reading this very differently now as an adult it yeah, sounds it's, horrifying.
1: It's really funny. I was, and that's like played for laughs. It's like it's supposed to be hilarious yeah. that the sheep were tortured to death.
0: <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then they kind of do the same thing with the like the tonsils. Yeah. Like there's yeah. The, the, the tonsils uh section where the they all have to have their tonsils out and the father just like doesn't believe in physical pain. So he's just like uh, just sort of believes that anyone who is sick or Just, you know, claims to be suffering in any way is faking it. And um, so he wants to have his tonsils out um, without anesthetic as sort of an example to the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I guess I just I just hate that trope so much. Um, the trope of just like anyone who's suffering is probably faking it, um, that is in so many books. And I hate it so much that I was like, oh, even if he did nothing else, even if he was like the best father ever in every other page of this book, I would, I would hate him. But then I was like, oh, this is like reading One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from the perspective of the people who think... The Nurse Ratchet is totally like a okay, right on. Um, and I know that there's a whole TV show about that now, but I haven't yeah. watched that.
1: I think that really pushes it over the top for me. Is that they're they're filming the operations, the tonsillectomies, mm-hmm. so there's this is whole kind of creepy aspect to it. And I think that's part of like the the kids who, that are who are growing up being studied and used to promote the business of the parents is also another whole dimension of that.
2: Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The brand, I mean, the way they're used in the advertisements and the little promotional films, the way that they invite people to come study the children. Um, yeah, that is also also just the, my response was this seems like the most stressful environment to grow <laughs> up in just the, the constant insecurity, the practical jokes. Um, and they say there again, like kind of for laughs, um, you know, we organized our lives around making dad feel okay. And they, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, they even say it, you know, it's not even really um, hidden, but it, it's pre- presented as kind of funny, just like the dad actually, you know, is getting knocked out by the tonsil surgery is also seen as kind of funny and not like this macabre. <laughs> ending to a horrible story.
0: I also think so many more people use their personal habits as their brand or their, um, sort of their, like, not just identity, but like if the concept of identity could be like raised to some exponent, Mm -hmm. um, being the kind of person who is living in a tiny house or, has 12 children or Mm -hmm. like being Mm. the kind of person who maximizes the efficiency of everything they do or minimizes their environmental impact or maximizes their environmental impact, whatever it is. Um, But that's such a thing. And like being a lifestyle blogger, which these people are definitely like (laughs) the soul of like tiny house lifestyle blogger, (laughs) evangelical vegans of some kind. Uh Um, And but like everyone knows now that there's a dark side to that okay. in terms of like um, that you're probably actually being horrible to your children in some way. Mm-hmm. but nobody seems to see that in this picture.
1: Yeah and I think that partly this book it's for, like one thing about it is that it's part of a genre of books written around this time, mid 20th century, mm-hmm. which are like centering the father as a kind of a, a lovable despot. Of a, who rules a happy family. Um, and I think it's really interesting like how that shifts. The father is the protagonist of a story about a family that's happy in this period. And if the child is the protagonist, then we begin to get like D.H. Lawrence or Long Day's Journey Into Night or something. Um, but as long as the father is the protagonist of the story, we completely like live in a world of happy denial where whatever the father says or does is okay and... And everyone like is part of the happy smiley cult.
0: And it's even written by the children, and they still, yeah. even as adults, are so willing to just say, "We all had the greatest time persuading our father that he was just like perfect in every way and propping up his his sense of self all the time."
2: Yes, um, I'm curious if you have reread more of those books because I did as a child. You know, I'm thinking of like all of a kind family and the the Saturdays and a couple other ones like that, that I, I liked as a kid that were sort of this, you know, um, looking back at kind of a large family living in some, in the past, but fairly recently. Um, and one of the, I actually picked up all of a kind family in the library mm. a, like a year ago, thinking I'd read it to my daughter. And I realized that my recollection again sort of happy family turn of the century new york um the entire plot revolves around the fact that this man has five daughters and he hates it and he wants a son (laughs) and I, i i had not remembered that but it also there's echoes of that in here too with like the hilarious tale of how clearly much happier the father is when um Lillian finally has a son, you know, and his whole tone around that and the way the story's told. I mean, I, I just wonder if I reread all of these books, if I would have the same horror or is it just this one that's particularly bad? I don't know.
0: Well, I, so I think about that. Um, like one of the very first scenes in Peter Pan is uh-huh. a scene where the, um, the mother and the children are desperately trying to stave off one of the father's uh, temper tantrums by saying, of course they respect him. They respect him and admire him so, so, so much. And they all have to sort of group together to uh, prop up his, his sense of self. And um, I don't, I don't know that any book that has what in one of our conversations, Sandra called like a culture of cult of patriarchy, Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that you could have the cult of patriarchy in a children's book like this without either, without kind of choosing a side. And I think that Mm -hmm. there's no question that this book is choosing the side of the cult of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, um, considers it that the fact that the mother completely blossoms as soon as the father dies at the end. (laughs) Um, It's just like, oh, well, you know, the worst had already happened. So it was impossible for her to feel anxiety. Um, and she just suddenly comes into her own, um, because she's so sad, I guess. Um,
1: can I, I just want to insert here the things that I've learned about the family since then researching oh, around this book. So the first thing that is very important is that the mother, Lillian, hated this book specifically because oh. it depicted her as a sweet stay at home mom who deferred to her husband, which apparently was not true, um, it couldn't have been true yeah yeah it's just it's just nonsense the book just completely distorted the truth and the and the other thing it's sort of the two siblings who wrote it Ernestine Gilbreth Carey had started the book and her brother got involved only because he had come home from the war and couldn't adjust to life after the war so it was sort of like a fix fix up my brother project to write the book huh.
0: Oh, interesting. So it was kind of like trying to um, remind him of happy days and make him laugh and stuff.
1: Yeah. And I guess sort of to, like to give him, to give him a job <laughs> as well.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah I mean, I, I read about the mother too, you know, and she had, he had a college degree and a whole career wrote. Uh, I think the thing I read said that she wrote and published more than, than um, her husband did and um was giving lectures they mention it maybe twice in the book that she has professional duties that take her you know away from home um and they only mention it in terms of ha- you know when she's having babies something about how she would have her like papers nearby so it's like tied weirdly to her having babies but um yeah they really downplayed the mom who clearly had her entire career and in a way implying somehow that the father's death inspired her to go out and have a career when in reality she had been part of this business. She had created it with her husband, as far as I can tell. And, you know, therefore of course it made sense that she would continue to do the work. It wasn't like she'd, she'd already been doing the work, you
0: know? Yeah. And I think she, I mean, from what I was reading had become even more successful at it once he was no longer being like, (laughs)
1: The character, <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to add, like the things that she she is was actually much more successful in real terms than he was. She's credited with developing the modern kitchen, conceiving the work triangle, ooh. inventing the foot pedal trash can, refrigerator door shelves, and wall light switches. Like wall light switches, wall light wow. switches. And at age eighty six, she was teaching still at MIT. So, wow! What that's incredible. Um, yeah, none of that's in the book. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, you that's don't, in the book. You wouldn't really get that impression.
2: Yeah. yeah, and they kind of, they give her, there are these scenes where she doesn't like doing the interviews because they always, it's almost like they almost get there because they they say mother doesn't like doing the interviews because they would always talk about her demure, um, oh, you know, I'm just a housewife. They would cast her, she, you know, the mother set complains that she's cast that way in the contemporary interviews. But then ultimately the book is doing the same thing to her. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> she can't yeah. escape it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you want to feel better about it, she she was a good friend of Herbert Hoover and she did campaign for the Hoovers. So maybe she had it coming. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, I, I still think that she's one of the people that is making an identity out of being very controlling about your lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I'm like, I do like wall light switches. It's true. (laughs) Um, So I don't want to be too (laughs) mean about it, but on the other hand, um, there's that, they're so confident. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a certain amount of um, like manifest destiny in your heart to have 12 children. (laughs) Um, But then also, like they're so confident that that if somebody were to have that family now, I feel like there'd be a defensiveness about how controlling they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it when I got to the very end and the uh, the oldest daughter wants to cut off her hair and become a flapper, and of course mm-hmm. the father's furious about it and is you know having a tantrum, and um, and there's the incredibly charming uh, description of. The 1920s hairstyle that long-haired girls are stuck wearing, which is mm-hmm. the um, cootie garage, <laughs> um, because apparently bugs could hide in in the buns that you have over your ears. Um, and she doesn't want a cootie garage anymore. She wants to be free, and she wants to cut her hair off. And um, and eventually, the parents are just like, "Oh, okay, I guess that's just what's going to happen." Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of they let it happen, and they they aren't that controlling anymore once the kids are actually ready to grow up, which um, even that seems like a level of confidence and cheerful uh, certainty that everything you're doing is right, that I just can't imagine feeling
2: well, that's such a good I didn't segue. Live in those eras. <laughs> yes, that's such a good segue to talking about the progressives, um, because you've kind of summed up the basic tenets of the progressive reformers, you know, just that they were um, a lot of confidence that they were right. And that led to, you know, some good things and some bad things. But that is the overwhelming yeah, worldview of a progressive.
0: You should talk more about the progressives, the the historical movement that you're talking about, um, as opposed to like contemporary.
2: Yes, progressives. like progressive. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, the progressives um, were is a term that's given to reformers from the 1890s to the 1920s, which is really right. They're right in the middle of it. These people are just absolutely textbook progressives um, who really um, had faith in progress through human intervention. Like the experts could figure out the best way to do something. And if everybody did that, we would the world would be a better place. Um, and there was a lot of emphasis placed on expertise and respecting experts. Mm. Um, and um, a lot of assault on like corruption, you know, the idea that you need to sort of get the old, inefficient possibly corrupt ways of doing things up out into the light cast light on them and, and, and find out the right way to do it and reform them. And there's some things that's so appealing about progressives. I mean, they're, they're valuing expertise, for instance. I mean, sure. That's, that's kind of nice, but you know, there's kind of a dark side to them too. And I don't, I mean, these are people who um, you know, many progressives were creating city parks and ending child labor and, um, helping, um, urban deal with urban poverty. And there are a lot of wonderful things they did, but, um, the kind of dark side of it is that it was very, um, culturally chauvinistic, you know, it's basically like there is one right way to do things. And that's our way, usually the kind of the American way. So one of the, Qualities the progressives had, for instance, they would often be kind of like going and telling immigrants what to do, what to feed their children, you know, get rid of the cabbage and open your windows and whatever. Um, and, you know, progressives are associated with, uh, on the extreme end of it, eugenics, the idea that if you want to, you know, again, this idea that human intervention could perfect our lives extended to the idea that there are certain people who shouldn't be having children and so they should be sterilized. Um, They were very interested. Actually, this is kind of topical. They were very interested in um, voter. I think the term they used was like voter purification, which, (laughs) Um, but essentially, you know, making sure that uh, essentially creating the idea of voter registration, um, you know, making sure people were qualified to vote. Um, They're big proponents of standardized testing. That's a mark they left on education Mm. to this day. Um, (laughs) Again, that you could have like experts kind of coming in and, having a model that will work for everyone and just a lot of confidence, like you said, Catherine. Um, but I, I saw that again, you know, when I read this as a kid, I didn't know about the progressives. Um, and so I didn't know that context, but they are so, they're just completely embody, um, that progressive confidence that there's a right way to do things you can figure it out, you can become an expert. And then of course you can tell everyone else to do it that way. And they should do it that way. You know, so, <laughs> you can really see it. I mean, in the, the motion study stuff, I mean, that is part of the Taylorism, which is this idea of like maximizing efficiency in the workplace. It's also a progressive era uh, thing. Um, and it was really critiqued, you know, because it completely eliminates the autonomy of workers to figure out how they're going to do their job. You know, it's really very top down.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, we just, um, you know, we just released our episodes on Nightwood, which is sort of, um, you know, that came out in 1936 and this is 1948, but you can really see how they're, they're kind of talking about the same society from two different angles. And mm-hmm. one of them is completely miserable. And the other one is completely cheerful <laughs> because of the same facts about reality. That was our first episode on Cheaper by the Dozen with April Holm. Thank you so much for listening to us at Lit Century, and thank you to April for joining us. We'd also like to thank Adam Baer for our podcast music and all the people at Lit Hub for hosting us. Um, next week, we'll have a continuation of this conversation with me, Sandra, and April. Um, until then, if you'd like to write to us, send an email to litcenturypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at litcenturypod, because we'd love to hear from you. Bye till next week.